This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for Italian ingredients and pantry staples. Learn more at gustiamo.com. Thanks for joining us for this hour of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro, and I'm your tour guide as we travel into the American Midwest. On this show, I aim to spotlight the diverse cultures and communities of the region by telling compelling stories through food. On today's show, we meet an inspiring group of activists as we explore how community fridges, pantries, and even ovens are helping address food insecurity across the Midwest. Now these concepts have popped up in larger cities on the coasts, but they are present in cities and towns, big and small, all over the Midwest. Unsurprisingly, Chicago is leading the way on community fridges. In the Windy City, the Love Fridge brings communities together through mutual aid, placing refrigerators in areas struggling with food apartheid. In Minnesota, we explore the concept of the community oven as a tool of outreach and engagement. But first, we welcome Ali Cristelli, a Nebraska native who brought the community pantry movement to Oklahoma City by founding Pine Pantry. Ali, thank you for joining the show today. You come to us from a little bit outside of the uh, traditional Midwestern footprint as you are in Oklahoma. However, I understand that you are a Nebraska native, is that right? That's right. Actually, grew up in a tiny little town in Nebraska of about 200 people um, before I moved a few times and ended up here in Oklahoma. So, uh, you know, this episode, uh, as you know, is all about um, community sharing uh, and helping one another through community fridges, community ovens, and community pantries, uh, which is where you come in and uh, your initiative, Pine Pantry, there in Oklahoma City. Um, Tell us a little bit about um, what inspired you to start Pine Pantry and how it all came about. Yeah, so uh, Pine Pantry kind of started, you know, in my brain I needed something and I happened to be scrolling through the internet and I saw something similar um, actually in Texas and, you know, I did probably what everybody does and I liked it and thought that's a really good idea Um, and it kind of stuck with me and it took a few months before um, I realized that I was probably the one who should start that and so um, I decided that I wanted to start one free food pantry um, Um, And it's kind of grown more than expected. But um, I started that one. And I think that it really comes from, um, or my inspiration really is from my grandmother, um, Grandma Jo from, you know, small town Nebraska. Um, She really showed her love through food. And she would um, package plates of cookies at Christmas time. And we would always go home with like these big things full of soups that she had made for us. Um, And it just helped me feel so loved and cared for. Um, and I myself cook a lot, and I definitely show my love through food. So it was just a really good way for me to connect with the community here in Oklahoma City. Well, you know, I what you're saying really speaks to me because it, it's very much, um, I don't know, I relate to it so much as someone who was inspired by my grandma and definitely carried on that tradition of showing caring and love through food. And the fact that you have expanded it you know, outside of family and friends and made it into a community effort by, by these, um, you know, pantries being put across Oklahoma City um, is, is just really inspiring. And I'm curious, um, everybody has a little bit of a different way in which they approach kind of the, um, the distribution of the, uh, the pantries or the fridges, for example, in whatever community that they're in. Is there a way in which you have selected the specific locations for your um for your individual pantries um how many and how many do you have now 
Yeah, so we have six locations. Um, they're kind of across, you know, across Oklahoma City, um, as far south as really the, the county line, um, and then all the way up to Edmond, which is, you know, kind of a suburb of Oklahoma City. Um, yes, I actually, you know, was somewhat strategic in my additional pantries. The first one, I really was focused on somebody who would let me have a space. Um, and that was actually a, another nonprofit here in Oklahoma City that we partnered with. Um, they shared a space with us. Um, and then the rest of them kind of happened um, based off of a restaurant group called Sunnyside Diner. Um, they're amazing and do amazing work um, throughout the community. So this really was a great fit. Um, but we, when they opened their first Sunnyside Diner, we had a pine pantry at that location and they've continued to expand. So, so have we. Um, but I also work in public health. So any of our other pantries outside of Sunnyside Diner in our first location, um, we're pretty strategic. Um, I researched the zip codes to find that, that there is a need in those areas. Um, but we also want people to be able to access those for um, donating and for taking. So we've been kind of strategic, um, but also we just want to make sure that we have as much of the area that, that we can covered. Sure. Yeah. I remember when we first chat, you had said that you'd kind of tried to select locations that were, uh, you know, sort of geographically distributed appropriately. So kind of every corner was, was covered in, in, in some way. But, um, you obviously, you know, in your background in public health, you talk about looking into the zip codes, obviously trying to figure out what the, um, maybe the health profile is um, and the demographic profile of those individual communities. What did you find and, and what contributed to you saying, you know what, I looked at this zip code and these, this community would benefit from a pantry? Yeah, so, you know, sadly, Oklahoma is the fifth hungriest state in the nation. Oh, um, we have I've learned something yes. new there. <laughs> yes, we have so many people that are dealing with food insecurity, um, and that's everyone. I mean, it's, of course, people who are unhoused. They're, they don't know where their next meal will come from, um, but also children um, and seniors living in poverty. Mm -hmm. um, so we really wanted to make sure we could address as much as possible um, so our locations really, we want to find somewhere that people have a need, of course, um, but where people also feel comfortable donating. And it's really been interesting that, um, you know, we could be as strategic as possible, but we're going to learn things along the way too. And so some of our pantries, um, one in particular is located um, at a bus stop, a school bus stop. So we serve so many more children there uh, because they get off the bus and then they go and might grab a snack and then head up to their um, apartment. And then we have areas where a lot of um, unhoused people who are living on the streets, they don't have access and so they'll get items there. And then we also have some areas where people might have housing, um, but they're underhoused. And so they may not have access to electricity or running water all the time. Um, so we really just serve a lot of different people. Um, we have different, definitely different snacks and, and things that go over well in one pantry and they might not go over in another one. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's just been really neat to see that. I, I can imagine. I mean, how do you, what, what kind of feedback do you get from the community and from those that are, you know, using the pantry? Yes, I will say the best part about Pine Pantry is actually meeting the people that are using the pantry. Um, I, I just think it's so neat that I know, um, you know, I, there are people in Oklahoma City um, and I know their favorite snacks and I never <laughs> would have crossed paths with them otherwise. You know, it's just, it's really neat to know that. And I can, I see people that, you know, over and over again, and I know that they're being helped. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's the feedback I get, that people um, are appreciative and grateful. Um, and you just get to cross paths and meet with people that you never would have seen before. And even our whole volunteer community, you know, I I'm, didn't grow up here in Oklahoma City, and there's all of these people that I've gotten to meet and cross paths with. Um, it's just, it's been really great. Well, you've obviously made Oklahoma City, you know, your home and your community and have invested in it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's great that you have a, a it sounds like a, a pretty robust um, volunteer base. How do you recruit those volunteers I and mean, how do they learn about Pine Pantry and, and what do they do for um, for the organization? Yeah, so it's really interesting. There's probably tons of, of volunteers because our volunteers are actually the people who 
donate. Our volunteers are definitely our donors too. Um, that I've probably never met, and they could it could be a part of their week, and I still don't know them because it's all completely anonymous. So I get to I definitely get to cross paths with a lot of them, but some of them I don't know at all. Um, I would say that people find out about um, volunteering and donating via our social media probably the most. Um, mm-hmm. We've done some, you know, some new stuff, and so people see us there. Um, but also, people just see the pantries. You know, they sit right. outside, and I think that people, you know, they might drive by and go, "What was that?" And then the next time they they go, oh, "Okay, I see what it is," and and they find themselves donating. Um, definitely for the people who use the pantries, um, word of mouth is big. Um, I hear, you know, I, I hear like slang terms now for the pantries, like the shelves and things like that. And I, I find that so comforting that people know it as a trusted resource. Um, but I think word of mouth, um, you know, I, I volunteer, um, at some other places and and I tell people as often as I can. That, I mean, that's great. I mean, word of mouth and that level of trust and community is, is really um, second to none. And, um, you know, I know in speaking to other um, organizations, sometimes it is difficult to find, um, you know, a location that is actually willing to um, partner and be a location for, you know, a fridge or in this case, um, a pantry. Um so I'm actually really curious to find out how you convinced um, uh, basically a chain of restaurants to partner with you um, and um, get them to agree to be a location for these. Yeah, well, it was actually really easy. Um, you know, once we got the first pantry open and people could see it, they understood it. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost too simple for people to go, what, it's an outside pantry? You know, like, it's it really is that. It's a pantry that sits outside 24-7, and any, anyone can access it at any time, put food in and take it out. Um, so once people saw the first one, then they kind of were like, okay, I get it. Um, and that's when um, Allie Cunningham of uh, Sunnyside Diner, she reached out to us actually on our Instagram and said, hey, oh, wow. we want to have... Yeah, we want to have a pantry. Um, And honestly, I wasn't planning a second pantry, um, but it just happened. And so we reached or we connected and it just made complete sense. They do. um, I know you've done a previous podcast about um, the pay it forward movement. And that's something that they do. Um, They just do so much for the community already. It made complete sense for us. Um, We have a location that's actually at an elementary school. And mm. the mayor is that, of, is that separate and apart from the bus stop? Yes, separate, oh, different wow. one. Yeah, and so it's at an elementary school. Um, and actually, in that case, we had uh, the mayor of the community. It's a small community called the Village. Um, he, it's really in Oklahoma City, but she reached out um, and she said that she wanted a pantry, and so that's how we made that one happen. Um, so it's just kind of, you know, I want to say it's strategic, but it's really just kind of happened and fallen into place. Um, we have a very long list of people who would like to have a pantry, um, but it really is just me behind behind Pine Pantry. And so we've done, tried to keep it as small as possible um, while serving as many people as possible, just so that we can make sure it's still a trusted resource and everything's in good condition um, and stocked regularly. So we've had to set some boundaries, which is really hard. Um, but yeah, we have lots of people who want them. Well, are, I know it's just you for now, but any any thoughts at least to being open to, um, you know, expanding the organization, maybe getting a volunteer board in to take off some of the load and, and help you expand? Yeah, that's definitely been um, considered, but kind of the way that um, I've done that instead is when people reach out and they want a pantry, um, I just offer to help them start their own project. Mm. Um, And so I, I mean, oh my gosh, I've probably had 40 meetings, you know, since 2017 where we just grab coffee and talk about it. Um, I know of several of those that have worked out and people have started their own projects um, and then, you know, not, it doesn't always work out. And once people find out more, they, they decide it's not for them. But yeah, I think that that's really helped because that's, that's how I started. You know, I saw it on Facebook and I thought I want to do that, but I don't know how to start. And so I sent a message to somebody and they took the time to answer my questions. And now we have Pine Pantry. So I definitely want to pay that forward. I was just going to say, it's a whole different type of paying it forward movement. And you gave me the great segue of, of the last question I wanted to ask you before I let you go. And, and that is, 
if someone wanted to do this, um, you know, in another community, particularly in smaller communities, um, what advice would you give someone that would want that maybe listening to this just as you were on Facebook a few years ago? It's like, this is such a great idea. I think that my community could benefit. Um, what advice would you give them to to get uh, a community um, pantry off the ground in their area? Yeah, well, let me first just start. You can use this for anything. I think the the biggest lesson I learned is that you can do anything, right? You know, people don't start because they think there's going to be all of these rules or there's, you know, going to be somebody who stops them. And that's Mm -hmm. the thing with the pantries. They're so small that if you, you know, if it doesn't work and you need to move it, you can. Um, They're pretty affordable. So if it doesn't work, you know, you can scratch that and try something else. Um, And so I know even my husband started a a sleeping bag project because he kind of saw how the pantry worked and he saw this problem and thought, what can I do? And so he just did it. Um, so I think that's the lesson that you can do anything and it could be even that you're just buying a meal for somebody that you see or buying a bus pass for somebody who, um, you know, doesn't have transportation, like all of these little things add up and really we just need people to be kind to one another and say hello and, and, and do those things. Um, but if somebody wanted to start a similar to Pine Pantry, a, a free little pantry project, um, there is a website. I think that it's, uh, littlefreepantry.org, but I might be wrong, so Google search would help. Um, But there actually are are plans on there. Um, You can actually kind of search the Free Little Library movement um, and use some of their best practices. Um, But really the best um, advice I can give is just start somewhere and do something. I love it. And I hope that, uh, you know, everyone in the audience um, uh, is listening and um, takes your advice because you really are a ray of sunshine. Um, and I know you're doing such good work in, in Oklahoma City. And um, the fact that it's just about being kind to one another and helping one another and, and doing it, you know, through food and through things that people need in their daily lives is, is just um, just shows how simple it is to, to make a, a significant impact. Allie, thanks so much for joining us and uh, hope to have you back again. We'll be right back after this break. This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Gustiamo's mission is to improve the quality of Italian food in the States. They independently import the best and most authentic food from Italian farmers and food makers, wonderful people dedicated to their land and their traditions. When you're searching for quality Italian pasta, San Marzano tomatoes, and real extra virgin olive oil, Gustiamo has them all. Shop their vinegars, coffees, sweets, and so much more. From northern hilltop hazelnut farmers in Piemonte to southern sea salt millers off the coast of Sicily, Gustiamo works exclusively with small family food companies in Italy. When you shop with Gustiamo, you'll know that your ingredients are authentically Italian and of the highest quality. For our listeners, Gustiamo is offering a 10% discount on your online order with Gusti code HRN. Learn more at Gustiamo.com. That's G-U-S-T-I-A-M-O dot com. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Down. You were just listening to Ali Criselli, discuss how she built bonds in her new hometown of Oklahoma City by founding Pine Pantry to serve those in need. Now we turn to Chicago as we are joined by Risa Haynes with The Love Fridge. Risa's commitment to mutual aid shines through as she helps stop community fridges in neighborhoods across the Windy City. Risa, thank you for joining Eat Your Heartland out today. We appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I am excited to talk to you about the Love Fridge, um, based in Chicago. Uh, tell me a little bit about how the idea of the Love Fridge started. What is it, first of all? Absolutely. Well, the Love Fridge, as we are right now, 
is a network of 24 community refrigerators in 18 neighborhoods, but by the end of this week, we will be up to closer 27 in um, 19 or 20 neighborhoods. And uh, what we are is just a community, a, a group of community fridges, and we, we help set up fridges, um, locate sites, and install fridges that we've had donated to us. And, uh, and then we help direct resources to those refrigerators in terms of food, personal care items, mm-hmm. um, everything that you could possibly need that you would buy at a grocery store or a bit, you know, any kind of personal care home goods item that you would need, we try to direct it towards uh, the fridges so that people can go pick them up for free. Um, So people end up stopping by the fridges a lot to just check them out and see what's in there and find out what kind of goodies are going to be available that day. But, so, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, please. I I just wanted to ask a little bit of a follow-up question to this because, you know, um, I don't know how much, uh, you know, a lot of people are not maybe necessarily familiar with the concept of a community fridge. And so, you know, just trying to kind of, you know, describe it in the mind's eye, you're just kind of in a neighborhood walking on a sidewalk and there is just a refrigerator on basically on the side of the road and you can open it up and take what you want. That's basically the concept, right? Absolutely. Um, We do in Chicago protect our refrigerators with shelters. So we have a build team that builds out shelters for our team for our fridges. We also share those build plans with anyone else who wants to start their own refrigerator in any community around the country or around the world. So we've shipped these plans out you know, emailed them out over uh, anywhere you can think of who's ever wanted a fridge. And we share all of the resources that we have um, regarding how we find food and how we get donated food and all uh, anything we can, we share. It's all open source. The whole idea is to just continue to share. But yeah, essentially what you're talking about is you would be walking or driving through a neighborhood and suddenly there is a refrigerator. Now they're all painted with artwork on the front. So they're also inviting. Um, most of them say free food and comida gratis in Spanish, you know, free food in Spanish. Um, just so everybody knows, like, this is for you. Uh, it does, there's a little bit of an entry point where people need to learn how to use the fridges. They're not always convinced that that food is for them. Um, but the right. food is really for everyone, every single person, anyone. We all need food. Well, and, and that's the wonderful concept behind this. And, and I've seen, um, you know, similar kinds of, uh, you know, community refrigerators in places like New York City. Um, but, you know, it seems to me that the goal, as you said, everybody, everybody needs food, everybody needs to eat, is to, you know, help bridge that gap and get resources into communities that may not necessarily have them for the residents. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's pretty much how this started with a lot of focus on the south and west sides of Chicago, where those are commonly known as food deserts. We kind of refer to it as food apartheid because, mm-hmm. you know, a desert is a naturally occurring phenomenon and apartheid is intentional. And we think that the the way that the um, neighborhoods have been designed and the lack of food resources is pretty intentional. Sure. Um, so, you know, we've really focused on those areas, but we've expanded into the northwest, which is a much more like resource fresh and full area. Um, but really, the idea is to give people an opportunity to share with their community and to engage with their community members and for everybody to really kind of come to a realization that, like, you know, there shouldn't be any invisible people out there that don't have food. We have plenty of food in this country. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, food insecurity is probably one of the most shameful things um, that exists in the United States. I mean, it just in my humble opinion. Uh, and this is just one small way to, to address that. So, uh, you know, I think we have a good idea of kind of what the goal is. But how did this start? Because my understanding is, is that, Love Fridges has not been around for that long in Chicago. No, it hasn't. We're looking at, I think we're coming up on eight months. Oh gosh, I've lost track. I feel like wow. it's eight or nine months. Yeah. So we, um, I actually wasn't involved at the very beginning, but my husband was from day one. And uh, one of our members is a, a guy by the name of Ramon Norwood. Uh, Ramon Norwood is also known as Radius. He lives in New York. He lives in Brooklyn. And he saw one of these fridges and he was on his way back to Chicago to spend some time here. And he just made a call out on social media and was like, hey, guys, look at this. We need to do this. Who's down? And the call was answered by hundreds of people. (laughs) It was really wild. It was kind of like the power of social media to do good instead of all of the junk it always (laughs) does. And um, folks really came through. You know, this was in in the height of the summer of 2020. We're in full on pandemic. We're in uprisings and social unrest everywhere. And people really wanted to do something that felt like they could make a difference. And so a lot of people jumped in to help move fridges, set up sites, get these shelters built, paint fridges, really people just came out of the woodwork. And from there, the food just flowed. You know, it 
really came quite easily. But that's the essentially the the gist of it. It started with just an idea that was floated out there, and um, a handful of people. Uh, well, a lot of people answered the call, but a handful are still involved and um, like heavily involved. And some of those people are graphic designers and uh, conceptors. And that's, I think, what makes the Love Fridge Network really strong is that we have like a really slick look and yeah. we're really cohesive. And we've we've done a lot of work as a group to figure out what we're about, our ethos and our practice. So we're really solid in that way. So what is your ethos? You, you meant that's a, that's a that's an interesting word to use. What how would you describe the ethos of the Love Fridge? So our, our mission is to, through mutual aid, we're pretty specific that through mutual aid, not not we're not a not-for-profit, we aim to provide um, communities with refrigerators that they can then put food into and we can help direct resources to. Um, but our, in general, you know, we believe that everybody deserves to eat and everybody deserves to have honor when they find and access food. So we don't want any barriers to access. All of our refrigerators are required to be 24-7 access unless there's sometimes very specific reasons why they're not. Um, but for the most part, we really only move forward with people who are looking to have 24-7 access. And, um, you know, there's in our ethos, we have determined a handful of things. One is that we would remain a mutual aid group and not kind of give into the the woos of um, becoming a not-for-profit, having mm-hmm. a board and salaries. So none of us take a salary. All of the funds that are directed to us, we turn back around and put back into the community in various ways. Um, we do not collaborate with politicians. We don't collaborate with police. We don't collaborate with ICE. Um, we don't allow people to... Uh, leverage our program for their personal mm-hmm. gain, meaning we don't really operate. We don't, uh, to, to say it bluntly, we don't sell out to advertising right, agencies. Right, there's, there's, there's no photo ops or branding. Nope, absolutely not. No, and if we do anything like that, it's because it's very intentional. It's a partnership. And through that partnership, we're also building relationships. It's not mm-hmm. transactional. We're very, very intentional about not having transactional relationships, mm-hmm. or at least attempting to. You know, it's a learning process. Sure. Um, but uh, to that end, you know, we um, also do not allow people to take pictures of folks accessing the fridge, particularly oh. people who are taking food from the fridge. Now, if somebody wants to take a picture of themselves donating food to the fridge, that's fine. But we do not allow in terms of like on our social media. And if somebody puts it on their social media, we usually reach out and ask them, like, could they reconsider? We would never make somebody take something down. But we would also not share their photos on our social media. Sure. um, Because we think that everybody deserves to have honor and anonymity. Um, and mm-hmm. respect when they're accessing the fridges, you know, and, and we do want to break down that barrier to access where people think they are not deserving or um, they you have to be of a certain low standard of living to access the fridges. That's not true. <laughs> you know, we want everyone to really feel like these are your fridges. If you're hungry, you're walking down the street, you open the fridge and see an apple, grab an apple. If you see a bottled water, grab a bottled water, you know, break down this mentality that like you're not needy enough. Everyone needs food and water. <laughs> So, so how do you identify, I mean, you talked about, you know, specific places like the South Side of Chicago, um, you know, in these areas that you uh, see as, you know, being plagued with the food apartheid, but, you know, how do you actually forge these community relationships? Do you, you know, it sounds like a lot of people come to you, but is there a very purposeful way of trying to match fridges with communities or specific, even specific blocks in a community or a neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, there is we would love to have that kind of option where we could say like, okay, we need one here and here and here. And these are the perfect hosts in all those locations so that these fridges are spaced out in such a way to make it make sense. But really, we we consider everyone who reaches out. And at this point, people really are reaching out to us almost on a daily basis. Um asking to have a love fridge. And we respond to every single one of those requests with um, essentially a questionnaire that asks questions like, is this host location a community space? Is it going to feel comfortable as a hub for everyone to come to? Because we don't want to make it an uncomfortable space for anyone. Um, And, you know, we also don't want it to necessarily be someplace that's just like a retail outlet where some people might feel comfortable, but not everybody feels comfortable. And then we ask, like, will the location be 24-7 access? This is a huge deal to us. Can the host provide their own uh, shelter build, or Mm -hmm. are they going to need help with that? We prioritize locations that can build their own shelter for simply for the fact that we are a small group with small amount of manpower. Um, Do they need help with electrical costs with our residential and community hub, like specifically, um, you know, kind of community space 
places, we offer an opportunity to off to defray the costs of electrical for the year. Um, so we offer like $150 stipend. That's essentially what it costs a year to add an additional appliance to your electrical bill. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll defray that cost for you if that's a barrier. Um, and then we ask, do you need help painting? You know, uh, right. and, and most importantly, do you have access to food? Because we are not vendors. We are strictly like a group of people who people email us with resources and say, we have a lot of this we want to donate. And we're constantly trying to find drivers to redirect those resources to now at present 24 fridges, soon to be closer to 30. So as you can imagine, that is the actual huge challenge of this whole thing. Sure. Is like keeping up that volunteership. I think it's what pretty much every vol- every group that operates with volunteership uh, struggles with that. So, um, you know, we have to be really mindful of that. And then we look at location, of course. Um, we do a site visit. We want to make sure that that site is a good site. We hand them our community agreement, which includes all of our ethos and practices, some of which I had uh, identified for you before. And, you know, sometimes that's enough for people to just fall off the map and not respond to us. They kind of sure. look at that email and say, wow, this say, is well, a lot of this work. Is too much. Yeah. Right. Like, oh boy, I'm going to be responsible for a lot of things. And then there's, you know, the unicorns, the hardcore warriors that answer the call and say like, yeah, we can do all of that. We're, we want to do that. We're already doing a lot of that. And then we start to take them more seriously. We, you know, do a Zoom call with them, let them, we meet, meet them and kind of get a feel for them. Um, in another world, we would, of course, go meet them face to face. Sure. And then we do a site visit, uh, take pictures, make sure the site's going to be appropriate in terms of keeping the city off of our backs. We don't get permits or anything like that because we mostly place these fridges on private property. So um, the exceptions being a couple of places where the... Like community center type yeah, and, and, and churches, host churches. locations that have like really strong roots in the community where their older people are not going to bother them for <laughs> having a, a structure and a fridge on the street. Um, you know, it's just it's very political in Chicago. So we just have to kind of like walk that line. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we usually do a vote. Um, well, we always do a vote and we give each member of our core group an opportunity to kind of raise any concerns. We address those concerns if we can address them in an appropriate way or a way that makes everybody feel good. We take it to a final vote. And uh, if it passes the vote of a, a real two thirds majority in our group, then we move forward. And and so it's a pretty long process. It can take a couple of well, months. You, know? you go. You don't need a five hundred one c three or board of directors <laughs> or any kind of bylaws or structure because you have all of those things. Uh, you know, as as uh, the way that you're operating as a mutual aid, uh, you know, organization as opposed to, you know, a traditional non for profit. Uh, and it's wonderful to see that people are coming out of the woodwork and and not only demanding the the fridge and fridges in their community, but also stepping up and wanting to donate, you know, whatever they may have to, to, you know, supply the, the fridges with food. What are you seeing when come in, um, you know, to actually stock the fridges? Because I know in so many of the food desert uh, circumstances, you're not only dealing with a lack of, of food access, but whatever food is, is often available, uh, whatever limited options are unhealthy ones. And right. uh, I'm wondering if, if you all are trying to also um, fill that need in, in understanding, you know, the, the importance of, of healthy food access in some of these, you know, communities uh, in need. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a huge deal. I'm the food distribution lead organizer. So I am like completely obsessed with that, that particular (laughs) question, because not only do I have, you know, the insider knowledge of what food is available, but where it should go. I also drive food around to a lot of fridges. So I'm I'm intimately, I have an intimate knowledge of this. But um, in terms of where food comes from, it comes from all sorts of places. Individuals are really kind of mind blowing, like the individual community person who just says like, I'm going to adopt this fridge. I'm going to go every Saturday when I do my grocery shop, I'm going to buy a separate set of groceries for this fridge. What do I think this fridge needs? I'll come to a fridge on a Saturday morning with like USDA boxes and it'll be full of milk. Like somebody just went to the store and bought like dozens of half gallons of milks and, you know, delivered it to one fridge. That's incredibly impactful, um, you know, when you see that because... People can open that fridge that day and they they don't feel that scarcity that they may feel in their life on other days. And they can say like, okay, I'll take two half gallons and there's plenty here more for the rest of my community. You know, um, those type of things are really impactful. But the average person is really the ones that are stocking these fridges the most. We direct resources there. We, ha- we deliver food based uh, that comes from um, – donations from places like Imperfect Foods, 
Um, mm-hmm. And we and I'm you know very specific about like making sure a lot of those healthy healthier options that come from there go to the south and west sides. Um, it also gives people the opportunity to try new foods that they've never tried yes. before, which is really fantastic. You know, I've, I've had wonderful conversations with people saying like, what was that? And I'm like, it was a guava. And they were like, I've never had a guava and it was delicious. And, you know, I mean, now they'll may, they may, may look for a guava at the, you know, ga- at the um, grocery store next time or the next time we have them at the fridge, they'll say, oh, I'm for sure going to take those guavas. But we also have a new initiative coming up and this is super exciting. We did a trial run of this over the winter. Um, it's called Buy Two, Give One. And and it was all designed and put together by these wonderful ladies that uh, have a little like creative agency called Night Snacks. And they um, came, I know, right? It's a wonderful name. They came, they've run, uh, you know, they're, they're like creative thinkers. And they really like this idea of like finding a way to support the Love Fridge while also supporting local producers, food producers, mm-hmm. and specifically farmers markets. So yes. what they did was they proposed an idea to um, a single farmers market, and now it's expanded to five or six farmers markets for the upcoming season, where people can buy two items one for themselves and one for the love fridge. So what they'll do is they'll buy two eggs, right? Two cart, two uh, dozens of eggs. One will be for themselves and one will be for the love fridge. So it's an automatic donation to us. But the but the food producers, the farmers are getting paid. So it's creating this like circular economy where people are able to give in multiple ways, right? They're going to support the farmers with money and they're going to support the love fridge with what we need, which is food. And not just food, but high quality, organic, delicious, mm-hmm. super healthy food. And, um, you know, all of that gets aggregated up on the north side. So it's a real challenge to pull it down to the south and west sides and get it distributed equitably. But um, I think we're, we're rising to the challenge. And luckily, this program is ramping up in a kind of a, a you know, a slow way so that we're able to absorb the more and more and more food that we're going to get along the way. Eventually, we'll be cooking food directly up from farmers markets when they're open in May. Um, and then it'll be, again, another challenge to make sure that equitably gets down to the south and west sides. Because we also like to give our volunteers a lot of uh, autonomy on where they have time to go. for certain pickups some pickups we tell them exactly where to go but a lot of times you know it's more attractive to jump on a pickup if you can say like well i'm going to go to the three fridges closest to my house um unfortunately that doesn't always end up being equitable for the south and west sides so that's when that's where i kind of step in and figure out the logistics of directing people there right well i mean i i gotta tell you for being less than a year old uh, the Love Fridge really is already making an impact, incredibly organized, um, you know, very mission oriented. And, you know, it seems like you, it's only up from here. You guys have, have an incredible opportunity for growth and more importantly, um, you know, fulfilling that mission of feeding people um, and, and doing it with both dignity and creativity. Uh, Risa, we're so happy that you could spend some time with us. Thank you. And, and hopefully we'll have you back again. You're listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. We were just chatting with Risa Haynes with Chicago's Love Fridge. Community cupboards and fridges have become somewhat of a trend nationwide, but not many areas have community ovens, a concept that uses open source ovens to bake bread for the masses and hold pizza fundraisers to benefit local nonprofits. So we're glad to have our final guest this hour, a pioneer in the proliferation of community ovens across Minnesota and beyond. Let's welcome Mike Faust to the program. Mike, thank you for joining the show today. Uh, We appreciate you coming on and talking about something that I didn't actually know anything about until I started to do some research, and that is the community oven. What is the concept behind a community oven? Well, let me give a little historical perspective and then bring it into our perspective in this day and age. Historically, back in the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, a family would prepare their bread dough uh, for their needs for the upcoming week and then head on into the village or the small town where there would be a communal oven. And that would be fired up to be used by all people in the community. And these ovens were big, um, upwards of six to eight feet in diameter, and they could hold 50 loaves of bread at a time. So a family would bring, come in, bring their loaves, get them in the oven, and while they're waiting, they would mitigate with their 
neighbors, friends get caught up on what's happening in people's lives and the neighborhoods and uh, talk about local politics. And that was that was the community aspect from our study of uh, the early community ovens. Sounds like the kind of things that people still want to do today. In a sense, there is. And that's what that's what we're trying to do. Um, I think the major difference is, is that uh, you and I wouldn't make our bread go and head off to the center of, center of our cities uh, looking for an oven. We simply would throw a loaf of bread in the grocery cart in aisle four of the local grocery store. <laughs> so um, the needs aren't quite the same. The needs are not the same. Right. But our objective was to use this unique old technology, so to speak, uh, in a manner in which we might attract members of the community to come and uh, join in, in in to be determined at that time when we started uh, community events that we thought we could hold at the church. And that's, that's how it started. And what we have found is that um, when our, we have pizza events, well, our largest pizza event, we, we make 180 pizzas in our wood-fired oven and serve a lot of people come and gather. Wow. And it's a local uh, event, which we are part of, but a lot of people come. And uh, when we do bread-baking events or fundraisers where people come and help, it's no different than, you know, in the Middle Ages in Europe. People are coming, and they're waiting for something to happen coming out of the oven, and they're visiting, getting caught up, and so forth. So in general, it's the same concept with regards to the outcome of events held around a community oven. Mm-hmm. You know, churches and other community groups like neighborhood associations, they're, they're looking for a way to, to reach out in this unique manner. And I think that's what's become attractive and to some degree the growth of what's happening here in Minnesota. Well, you, this is your point right there segues directly into to what I was just going to ask you. And, and that is about kind of the proliferation of community ovens, particularly in Minnesota, at least in doing some of the, you know, my, uh, preliminary research, uh, about community ovens. So many of them that, that I identified were, were in Minnesota. And I have the distinct feeling that your work in your community and your church, you know, are very much behind that. And, uh, you, have tried to put together almost a uh, a roadmap for for other uh, churches and communities um, to have their own community ovens. How, well, how did let's that start work? at the beginning. How we started with our oven, and we were the uh, initiative, I guess, that started eleven years ago. It all started with the pastor at our church, uh, Bryce Johnson, a Methodist church that I go to here in White Bear Lake. And he, he was been a baker since he was a kid. And he baked bread all the way through high school mm-hmm. and through college. And then he, uh, about 20 years ago, uh, he built his own wood-fired oven in the backyard and really became enthralled with uh, baking artisan bread. Well, who, who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, sure. But in, in 2009... Uh, Bryce received a grant from uh, an organization that provides funding specifically to pastors at churches to allow them to take a sabbatical, uh, in other words, uh, uh, some time away from the church. And as they say, do something that will make your heart sing. Well, Bryce uh, did receive the funding. And what he requested was funding to go to Europe and study bread baking in uh, Europe from some experts and then do a little exploring on the history of community ovens. He was gone for about three months. And when he came back in one of his uh, first sermons, he shared with the congregation the thought of, why don't we build an oven here on, on our property and see if that's a way we could really communicate and connect with our community. One thing led to another, and the congregation was behind it. He got me involved. Uh, Bryce and I have known each other for quite a few years, and he appreciated my ability to design and build things and asked if I would lead a task force, which we did, and we gathered some funding, and we had 40 volunteers sign up, 
and started building in the summer of 2010. The oven we built was uh, designed from a gentleman by the name of Alan Scott, who's uh, kind of a guru in wood-fired ovens. Uh, he since passed away, but we were able to get some rudimentary drawings from him, and then we additional engineering work on those because we had to interface with the city to gain approval to put this kind of a structure on our property. But that went okay. And uh, after we built it, then we started having events and starting started to learn um, different um, events that, that would work for us and uh, help connect with the community. But it was that second year, we finished it in fall, and the mm-hmm. second year we started having pizza events. And that really, that brings the, a lot of people uh, out uh, to the oven. And what happened is other churches heard about us through articles written in the local newspapers. And they wanted to come and visit and learn. And, of course, we we invited them to come. And that's mm-hmm. how it started to begin at that point with the And um, so now we have uh, 14 community ovens here in Minnesota. And right now I'm working with eight other organizations that are, the majority of them most likely will break ground this spring building ovens. So yeah, it it just started uh, uh, without any expectation of where it might head. And it does keep uh, Bryce and I somewhat busy. It certainly sounds like it, but it's it's great to hear that uh, communities want to utilize this kind of tool, for lack of a better word, um, to bring people together, to also, you know, um, use what they make there to raise funds, whether, you know, it's maybe a local community organization or scouting organization or the churches, certainly. Um, and so, you know, bringing the, the, you know, the connecting the community together. Um, and when I first started learning about community ovens, I sort of thought to myself, well, maybe this is a, a way that, People just use this oven, um, you know, as a way to address issues of food insecurity. I've since learned from conversations with you and other research that that's not necessarily the case. But um, I, I I understand, though, that um, there have been times where uh, the community ovens have been used to make bread and those sort of things to feed um, maybe, you know, communities that, uh, you know, might be at risk or lower income. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of those uh things that have happened? Well, when we first, you know, put the concept together, we had high expectations that we would make bread and provide bread to the local food that could be then distributed to those in need. And uh, when we approached the food shop, um, they pretty much set us straight from the perspective that they didn't need bread because they get bread from the local bakeries and grocery stores that, you know, take day-old bread off the shelf. And it's donated to them. But what they did right. suggest is, here's, here's a way you can help us. Go ahead and bake your bread and you sell it as a fundraiser. And we we are in need of, of cash to buy things we can't get or provide some, some monies to the families to go purchase fresh produce and things like that. That's, that's how we started 11 years ago. And mm-hmm. that has evolved into a, a monthly mm-hmm. fundraiser we call Baking with a Purpose. Now, we haven't done this because of COVID uh, the last year, but historically, every Saturday, first Saturday of the month, we bake upwards of 100 to 150 loaves of bread. It's advertised in our local newspaper and our church members know it. And we take a free will offering and we designate to what charity the funds will be going to. A lot of it goes to the food shop, but it may go mm. to other needs in the community. And people come, and we sell out the bread every time. And we, we, we offer the bread. We ask for a free will offering. And it's amazing how many people will throw in $20 for a loaf of bread because they know what it's, their uh, contribution is going towards. And it's a win-win situation because uh, if you came and you, you uh, uh, donated and walked out with two loaves of bread, you have two beautiful loaves of bread, and you helped uh, an organization in the community. That's the main way we use it for fundraising. We do the same for pizza. Ben. 
where the funds go mm-hmm. to support uh, local needs. Sure. Uh, you know, one other th- one thing that I do want to also ask you before I let you go, uh, I remember in one of our conversations, you had mentioned that uh, you would be willing to share kind of the blueprints for these community ovens for people that may want to use them in their own homes. But there was there's some caveats attached to that. I want you to tell me about that. Well, uh, over this tenure of 11 years, uh, I have designed three different size ovens. Um, I have drawings, I have bill of materials, and instruction manuals that I use for churches to, for them to build their ovens. But historically, what happens, Capri, is people who come to these events, they say, well, I'd love to have one of these in my backyard. And so um, one of the designs that I have uh, come up with is uh, a nice size oven for a backyard for entertainment, baking bread, and... Um, some churches have started with a small oven, but for people who are interested in a backyard oven, um, I, I'm not in the business to sell plans or anything like that. I donate the plans to them, but I have one request, and that is uh, if you build an oven using my resources, I want you to have a neighborhood event and invite all your neighbors, and especially those that you don't know. and get to know each other. And that's what it's all about. And we have an oven here in the backyard and we do a lot of neighborhood events. And it's just a wonderful way to pull people together. And as we've talked about, have this sense of community uh, amongst those that we live with in our area. So, so yes, that's what I do. I love that. And and I think, you know, and one of the things that we focus here on this show is is about, you know, food as a storyteller, but also food as a connector uh, and as a tool. And in this case, these community ovens and, and what they produce um, very much are bringing communities together. And I'm glad that uh, you've been willing to share your story um, for with our audience, because uh, I'm sure much like me, um, a lot of people don't know the community ovens are something that are out there, and, and maybe this will spark some interest uh, in other parts of the country to see how community ovens can help bring different communities uh, together in their own individual backyards. Mike, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, uh, been, it's been very fun for me. Thank you. Eat your heartland out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.